Hello, my name is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden and welcome to At the Forefront. Welcome to At the Forefront with Dr. Deb. I'm here in studio today with one of my favorite folks, Dr. Woody Neighbors. Hi, Dr. Neighbors. Hello, Dr. Ferholden. I'm so happy Dr. to have Deb. Dr. Deb. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you here, Dr. I'm, Woody. I'm very happy to be here. We um at the for here at the forefront really try to take on and tackle the issues um that we think are gonna take us into the a new millennium where health health is experienced by people as a right and not a privilege, where health disparities are a thing of the past where health equity is something that people are knowledgeable about, we talk about, and we have practical solutions for. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for being at the forefront of this health equity revolution with us. Well, thank you. So just so people know who you are, Dr. Neighbors, you were a professor of health behavior and health education at the University of Michigan School of Public Health for about 30 years, correct? That's correct. I uh, hung around with the Wolverines a little bit before uh, switching over and Running with the Spartans. Yeah, and this is not trivial. And these in these parts, when I when I was first coming to uh, make the move from Hopkins to Michigan State, I didn't quite know the language. I didn't have the language right, so I kept telling people I was going to Michigan. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I know. And, and Tom Levy said, "You have got to stop saying that because when you say that, it will give people the impression that you're going to the University, University of, Michigan. of Michigan. Right. That's what people mean when they say Michigan. Yeah. You have to say state or MSU. Right. If you're talking about Michigan State. Yeah. So you were at the U, you were at Michigan, you were at University of Michigan for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Did a whole bunch of really great epidemiologic work. Yes. Identified some really significant relationships and pathways around how things worked, mm-hmm. specifically for um black men and black boys and black families. Mm-hmm. And then you hit the wall of what you call description fatigue. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, when I uh, showed up here four years ago, that was my favorite phrase, uh, yeah. description fatigue. Yeah. Now, it wasn't uh, very tiresome back in the 70s when we first started uh, doing this kind of work. And uh, I'll apologize in advance if I get too verbose about the... Um, early days of my uh, University of Michigan career, but I think they're very important yeah. uh, because I want people to understand the, the uh, empirical uh, data-driven foundation that we set out to um, provide for researchers back in the mid-70s. So I came to Michigan in 1975 to work on a PhD in social psychology, and my mentor was a guy named James Jackson. Yes. And he's still around, <laughs> still doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, most people don't know that James Jackson uh, graduated from Michigan State University, so he epitomizes for a lot of us the fact that this Big Ten rivalry that we talked about at the beginning yeah. is really only relevant for one Saturday <laughs> in the fall. I love it. You I know? love it. Yeah. And after that, I mean, basically, we've got all these great universities at U of M, Ann Arbor, MSU are two of many. So yeah. Um, long story short, uh, James Jackson had this wacky idea of doing a national survey of black Americans. Yeah. And so we drew the first nationally representative sample of adult uh, black Americans and so basically, I cut my teeth as a survey uh, researcher, mm-hmm. 
And I became interested in mental health and really mental illness and looking at the prevalence of mental disorders from uh, a community sampling perspective. And uh, that made me look like a psychiatric epidemiologist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not a card-carrying epidemiologist, as you well know, but... Uh, <laughs> That's a little inside joke <laughs> Yeah, that you we tease have. me about that. Yeah, yeah. Bit, but, you know, um, that work was very important. Uh, and again, I won't go into detail about the National Survey of Black Americans, other than to say it was the first sample of its uh, type. This was not an oversample of Black Americans. This was a true sample of Black Americans. And this Americans. was important because we didn't have anything like didn't that. Didn't have that. So much of what we were understanding about health and health behaviors were based on samples that didn't really reflect didn't us represent as a community us. and didn't represent yeah. us. You might remember reading books like uh, Tally's Corner and All Our Kin. You know, these are all very good books, but they were small, you know, uh, qualitative samples of convenience. Yeah. Um, the Mark of Oppression is another old one. So very many um, works like that where uh, social scientists were overgeneralizing to the black population on the basis of uh, convenience samples. And the National Survey of Black Americans was designed to counteract that. And so that's how I got started. And I can continue the story from <laughs> there because, um, you know, when you have a very large representative uh, sample, um, you're really doing, you know, model building and, uh, you know, you're basically aware of a, of a, a simple relationship be some, between some demographic variable and some outcome variable, and you're trying to build in the intervening mechanisms. Uh, but because it is cross-sectional work, um, at the end of the day, it's, you know, very descriptive is what I came to call it. So it's a cross-sectional survey, but it's been done multiple times? No, the National Survey of Black Americans was done once. Now, there was a follow-up, but yeah. uh, most of those data haven't really been published. And then uh, in the early 2000s, uh, it was somewhat replicated, and that study was called the National Survey of American Life. And by then, we had become African Americans, but it was still a national sample of black Americans. But we also included a, a Caribbean sample and a small uh, white American sample, but these are white people who were distributed within the United States in, in, on the same basis as uh, African Americans. So that was the replication of the National Survey of Black Americans. So you can think of it as two cross-sectional data sets. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, anyway, my point is that I did a lot of very interesting papers on, uh, that were descriptive in nature. And you got description fatigue. Yeah, I mean, I started this work in the mid-70s, and by uh, uh, 2010 to 2015, uh, I started to, um, you know, try to get a, got a sense of, you know, what the impact of that, all of that work was. And uh, so, to me, there was a lot of good news, but there was some news that was frustrating. The good news is that if you're a university professor, uh, your main impact is going to be, first of all, on the students that you're teaching. Yeah. And I did a lot of teaching at U of M. And then with the research that you're doing, uh, you're, you're publishing and you're expanding the knowledge base among all the other scientists who are interested in what you're interested in. 
about 1985, many of us became interested in what we now call disparities. Mm -hmm. And I know you're very well aware that that's when the uh, Secretary's Task Force on Black and Minority Health was published, or sometimes known as the Heckler Report. And being in public health, naturally, all of us were, you know, just really drawn to this notion of excess deaths, which is another way of, you know, measuring disparities. And so by the time I got into, you know, I'd say about 2015, uh, I started getting curious about the impact of all this work on disparities, particularly racial and ethnic disparities. I started doing a look back. And that's when I discovered that a lot of the disparities we were so upset about in the mid-80s really hadn't changed that much over the time period. Mm. So it was a defining moment for me because it crystallized where I had had my impact as a professor, like I said, on, on my students, yeah. many of whom are doing amazing things. I mean, you mentioned Tom Levise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he wasn't my student, but I knew Tom you know, when he was a graduate student. We well, hung were, out a lot. And you were on Tom's dissertation I was on his committee. Yeah. committee. Yeah. So we joked so I was about one of this. His mentors. Because yeah. if Tom is my mentor, and if mm-hmm. you were Tom's mentor, that yeah. makes you my grand mentor. Right. We're in the same family. <laughs> we're in the same family. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you're mentoring a lot of great students now. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, Rick Sadler had to, and I had this conversation at APHA. Yeah. And so Rick said, oh, so we're in the same family. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, but anyway, long story uh, short, um, I decided it was time for me to make a change in what I, the kind of science and the kind of research that I was doing. And it wasn't so much me turning my back on the descriptive epidemiology. Um, it was really just trying to find another way to try to have an impact on the uh, health disparities that we were all upset about, but really hadn't changed appreciably over the time period that a lot of us were doing this work. You know, Tom, uh, David Williams, uh, Shariki Kumanyika. I mean, there's so many of us who, you know, really kind of getting our uh, our start during the mid '80s, and everybody was trying to work on this problem. So that's when I decided to um, uh, cure my case of description <laughs> fatigue. Uh, you know, it's funny how uh, I mean, you look back and think it's it's just really good to be lucky, and it's good to be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I got my first big break on that in the mid-70s when I came to U of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and got uh, mentored by James Jackson. And uh, I got really lucky when I found out about this incredibly new vision that Michigan State University College of Human Medicine had for uh, Flint, uh, now known as the Division of Public Health, yeah. which you are leading. Yeah. Um, and so everything just kind of coalesced for me. And... Um, I decided I wanted to be a part of this new thing that MSU College of Human Medicine was building here in Flint, and I wanted to reinvent myself as a community-based participatory researcher with uh, a focus on uh, doing intervention work. Instead of just the description work, I wanted to get closer to what we used to call respondents, yeah. But they're they're real people. Yeah. <laughs> living in real situations. Yeah. But if you're doing survey work, you know, you're way up They're just responding. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's such a distance between you and the people who are answering your questions. So I came to Flint to to, you know, walk the streets of Flint and try to see what I could do from a different perspective. 
Yeah, so it's interesting. When you call people respondents, it's almost as if the thing that's important is the survey itself. Yeah. Right? Because that's the thing, and they're responding to the thing, the yeah. survey. Yeah, yeah. That kind of work is very different because you're right. I mean, you, you, you call them respondents because you're interested in their response, response? Yeah. which otherwise is known as data. Yeah. And then you get a data set. Yeah. And then you analyze it. And again, that's part of the whole enterprise, but it's a very different uh, frame of reference from the kind of you know up close and personal community based participatory work where I don't even use the word responded anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I see I see men who are in my current study. I see them on the street. I bump into them. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's very different, and I I like doing this kind of work now. Yeah. So tell me, tell me some of the things that you learn, because I don't want to in any way, shape or form diminish the importance of the very good epidemiologic foundation that has been laid. You said something that I think is critical for people to understand, which is despite all the innovations in health and healthcare, despite additional resources and a growing budget being allocated for health, we haven't really moved the needle on many of the disparities. Yep. And, and even worse, what a lot of people don't know, and I specifically deal with this when it comes to substance use, mm -hmm. is in some areas, the disparity has actually gotten bigger. Yeah. Because whites have disproportionately, disproportionately been the beneficiaries of those innovations. So things have stayed the same for African-Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities but have improved for whites. So the gap between the populations has actually gotten bigger. And mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know that. No, I don't think a lot of people know that. And in fact, uh, being trained as a cross-sectional person, I really wasn't in the habit of uh, looking at data over time. Yeah. And I started doing more of that, you know, primarily because I, I, you know, I got into my 60s and I didn't feel like I was old, but I was old enough to say, well, let me see, what, what did we do anything? Yeah. You know, and one way for me to answer that question, you know, as a public health person, mm -hmm. is I want to look at population health statistics over time. Like you say, did things get worse? Did they get better? Uh, they were supposed to get better. Yeah. Now, if you're a disparities researcher, the main way you, the main thing you look for to determine where things got better is these trend lines that we're all looking at. They better get closer. You know, like you said, in uh, some things that you're looking at, they're not getting closer. They're getting further apart. Further apart. And that means that we're not, things are not getting, but we're not closing those gaps. Well, let me tell you, this is my new thing. And I um, just wrote an opinion piece on it uh, about the sort of um, gap, if you will, and the new state of affairs for health disparities research. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, in my experience, people will say I'm a health disparities researcher. And in fact, what they're doing is they're doing research on disparate populations mm -hmm. or they're providing interventions for disparate populations. Mm -hmm. But I always tell people, if you really are a true disparities researcher, you've got to have your eye on that gap. Mm -hmm. You can't just have your eye on the one line. You've mm -hmm. actually got to have your eye on the gap between the two lines or the three lines. Yeah, right? I mean, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. And you know, I don't think we want to get into a side debate about the uh, pros and cons of doing comparative research but, research, but from an epidemiologic perspective, I think we're always 
having our eye on at least two lines. Yeah. And in, and in my case now, I'm looking at five yeah. lines. Yeah. And I remember the days when <laughs> the world was either white or non-white. Yeah. And then it was white and black. And then that third group popped up, and it was typically Mexican-American, and it became Hispanic, Latino, Latinx. And then, you know, American Indian, Alaska Native, and now Asian Pacific. So now we have five lines to look at. Yeah. And I, want to, I don't want to get off on that, but believe me, when you start looking at five lines over time, there are many gaps, many yeah. differences, and many disparities. Uh, but let me get it, yeah. back to one thing you asked sure. me earlier. You said, what, what did I learn or what have I learned from moving from the descriptive side to the uh, intervention community-based side? So the first thing I've learned is that uh, all this opposition and skepticism we faced when we said we wanted to study African-American men, and we were told they're too difficult to reach. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is... Um, I almost said a bad word. I'm going to say <laughs> boulder dash. <laughs> That's just not true. We got it. We got it. Back yeah. In now, days. don't get me wrong. Yeah. Black men are difficult to reach, but they can be reached. And Is so, it that they're difficult to reach? Like that's the only thing? Or is it that they have very valid high mistrust of the research enterprise, which historically has not, not only not served them, but when you think about things like Tuskegee and other types of experiments where, you know, um, black people were allowed to suffer mm -hmm. with diseases that we had no cure cures for. So people could study natural history mm -hmm. at our expense. To me, if you are as a as a black person don't have some hesitance or skepticism about research, I, that sort mm -hmm. of raises a question mark for me. Yeah. Right. So I, I do think it's a combination of those. Yeah. Uh, I think that everything you just mentioned is a very general and pervasive phenomenon among, uh, you know, black people and African Americans specifically that we have a very, uh, I call it healthy mistrust. Exactly. Or healthy paranoia yes. is a term that I picked up from an old book called uh, Black Rage. I don't know if you had ever had a chance to read that. But, it sounds uh, like my kind of book. Yeah. Yeah. It's written by two psychiatrists uh, back in the early 60s. And they have a whole section on, you know, uh, healthy adaptive paranoia. Yeah. You know, and their point was a lot of the things that the white community uh, pathologizes, uh, if you if looked at from a different perspective, is not really psychopathology at all. So, anyway, that that's that's interesting. Dr. Stuff, Neighbors, but, you are kicking yeah. the science, by the way. I'm just like letting you know. Okay. You well, just dropped you. the big bomb, like. You know, this is just like to you, we're just having a conversation, but mm -hmm. so many people do not understand that the experience that people have and mm -hmm. at outrage is a is a valid yeah. and healthy response. I don't know if I want to say that's a healthy response. It's a valid response. Yeah. And there is something called a healthy level of mistrust and mm -hmm. paranoia. Yeah. So thank yeah. you for, um, yeah. so, for I bringing mean, yeah. that up. Because it's, it's adaptive. It's protective. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you have to be aware of... <laughs> You know, when you might be in danger. Yeah. You know. So you can make better decisions. Yeah. It's not being paranoid. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, but but anyway, I, I take your point. I think that is a, a, a pervasive situation for uh, many people of color. But when we, when, we, when we fold gender into it, you know, black men carry that mistrust. But we black men also have 
at least one or two other issues that we need to deal with that um, makes it even more difficult for us to connect to the healthcare system or the medical care system or to engage in research. And I'm just telling everybody who'll listen to me that if you're a research investigator and you are doing a study of disparities, which means you're going to have people of color in your sample. Sure. I'm tired of hearing you tell me that you woefully underrepresented the male population in your data set. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to hear like why that happened. My attitude is that you just didn't try hard enough to really get that uh, aspect of the community because we aren't just going to show up ready to go. I mean, we worked hard in this particular study that I've just completed and we did face challenges. We had to reconfigure our timeline a couple times and we had to actually come up with different outreach strategies. And it's, it's perfect for what we're doing here in Flint because you have to be, I mean, what I learned is that I have to be very assertive by being in the community. Assertive, I mean, uh, outreach and recruitment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a, as a survey researcher in my old days, we, you know, we used to joke like, okay, look, I'll be up on the fifth floor of the Institute for Social Research uh, you know, wake me up when the data are in and, and yeah. we'll get to analyze it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you're doing CBP, community-based participatory work, um, what I discovered is that you can still uh, fall prey to that mentality. And so when we first started doing recruiting, we set up, you know, uh, Hamilton Clinic was our partner. Ha I'm sorry, Hamilton Community Health Network yeah. was our partner. And they uh, very graciously gave us permission to set up in one of their uh, health clinic lobbies. And so everybody said, oh, there's so many people with diabetes here in Flint. All you got to do is sit here in the lobby and, and they will come. So we sat in the lobby. And some of them came. <laughs> a lot of them didn't come. And those who came, it was a slow and steady trickle. It really wasn't enough for us to meet our obligations for the sample size that we wanted. Even so you could just go sit in a lobby and, and, and them just flock to you yeah, like, yeah, that's what we, like moths to a flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after a couple of weeks of that, we're like, okay, <laughs> that's out the window. Okay. <laughs> so you get my point. You know, we, we left the uh, clinic and, you know, we just went everywhere we could go within Flint uh, churches, barber shops, beauty shops, um, you know, community health clinics that were all over, uh, senior citizens, just anywhere we could think of to spread the word uh, that this great study was happening and we needed folks to um, sign up. Long story short, uh, we were able to meet our goals. Uh, it just took us a little bit longer and a lot more work than we had originally anticipated. So, you know, men will uh, participate, black men will participate. Uh, it definitely helped us to, uh, for them to see that this was a study that was directed by an African-American man. 
And in this case, I'm studying diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so once I was able to get into a conversation with people, uh, it really helped us for them to know that I myself have had the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes for over 20 years. And, and that was one of the reasons I was really interested in trying to figure this out because I've had my own struggles with trying to con- control blood sugar. Uh, I knew there were many men out there like me, and we had a great program, and we were just going to try to spread the word. So um, that's what I have to say about uh, the so-called difficult to reach. If a group is difficult to reach, then basically you just need to work harder. Yeah, and so I love that because I feel like you know, it's easy to p- make the problem out there and over there with them. Yeah. Perhaps the strategies that might work for one population won't work for every population. Right. 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 Yeah, you're right. And so I appreciate you um, sort of bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So that so you say you yourself have been have had to manage diabetes because I think mm-hmm. I also love to do myth busting. Right. OK. And don't get me wrong. You know, I think. um not in all myths, but some of the things that people say originated from something, right? Somebody might have taken a shred of something Mm -hmm. and then turned it into, you know, something way bigger, way worse than it was. Mm -hmm. But I oftentimes will hear colleagues and, and, and family members say the two biggest things that are killing black people are salt and sugar. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you think, you know, that's linked with, Salt, hypertension, mm-hmm. sugar, diabetes. Exactly. As a matter of fact, everybody in my family calls diabetes sugar. Sugar, right. So-and-so got sugar, yep. right? They yep. don't even really say diabetes. The younger yeah. people are more, yeah. you know, sort of savvy in that respect. Mm-hmm. But that's not exactly the etiology for all hypertension and all diabetes. So you regulate your blood sugar, you have a healthy diet, and this is something you still have to deal with, Right. Yeah, but did you say I have a healthy diet? Oh, I'm did, sorry. Who, yeah, you're like because I thought you, you that? were. I thought you were gonna bust a myth. Bust a myth. Yeah, so that I you just better threw bust a myth that out. one. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't always put it like this. I do not always eat what I know I should eat in the way I should eat it. Gotcha. Uh, so part of the thing we're dealing with here is that uh, for many of us, it's not totally uh, the the lack of awareness. Yeah. It's, it's really the difficult decisions that we have to make in terms of on this particular day, can I make a good decision as opposed to a bad decision? Now, some folks don't know what to do. You yeah. know, in the early stages of if you get a diagnosis, then from that point on, it's a continual learning curve because you do have to learn stuff. Some people don't even know they should have the diagnosis. And that's, you know, from a public health standpoint, that's really what we are interested in. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't sign up to do only patient care because I'm not a clinician. Uh, But I'm interested in how patients do. But, you know, we're always walking it back, walking it back. And we have found that um, there are a lot of men in Flint who do have the diagnosis, but they're not accessing the care that they need, and more importantly, uh, they haven't figured out how to make good decisions to control their blood sugar. And I include myself in that group. Yeah. You know, I, I've had periods where I've made great decisions, and then I have had periods where I haven't made such good decisions. Yeah. And I can talk about that if that's something you're interested in. But then we're, you know, we're now in the position of walking in another step back for all of those folks out there who 
don't know they have the sugar. Yeah. You know, they're experiencing some symptoms, but they haven't put those symptoms in together in a way that crystallizes to a medical diagnosis. Um, and so that's why we're interested in, you know, screening and follow-up. Not just screening for the hell of screening, but actually screening. And then anyone who screens positive, they need to be followed up. So, you know, and then eventually we want to do the, the large-scale epidemiologic stuff. But uh, thankfully we have the, uh, you know, National Health Interview Survey and the NHANES and things like that that we yeah. can go to for those statistics. So I want to ask you a couple of questions because sure. you've got this amazing program of research, mm -hmm. uh, the Man Up, Man Down program. Right. And uh, if memory serves me correct, you, in that program, deal with the three Ds. Mm-hmm. Diabetes. You tell me, yeah. Okay. Oh, you tell me if I'm right. Diabetes. Diabetes, depression, depression, and dental health. You got them. I got them. You got them. So, by the way, that was a major breakthrough for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, just to come up with something that people can remember easily. Yeah. You know, because in the olden days, I would have had like a full page, <laughs> you know, so what do you do? Well, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. so I'm like, nobody wants to hear that. No, I love it. The three you know, D's. And so see, they're right there for me. Yeah. And so then with diabetes, so this, the study that you have, which is a part of the Man Up, Man Down program. Mm hmm. Tell me the sort of the, the flavor of it, the tenets of it, because it is just for black men, correct? Correct. And you as the principal investigator or the leader of that, it sounds like you're really connecting with people, both sharing your own experience, not othering them like you all need to be doing this and you all need to be doing that, but rather a we need to yeah. for our health and for our you know, well-being, need to be taking these issues on, and you sort of include yourself in that. Yes. Is that a sort of critical feature of man up, man down? It's sort of like, you know, in the substance abuse world, they say the power of one addict supporting another is unparalleled. Is mm -hmm. that what you're mm -hmm. kind of creating with man up, man down? You've got black men supporting other black men mm -hmm. with these around these three Ds specifically? Yeah, I mean, it is a very, very critical feature and I'll try to summarize that succinctly because it's part of a long story. I mean, we didn't just come up with this. I mean, it was like developmental over time as we tried to understand what was going on uh, with uh, black men. By the way, uh, <laughs> this really got motivated by the fact when we started monitoring life expectancy in 1985 when the Heckler Report came out. And we noticed from about 1985 to 89 the life expectancy for black men was uh, going down. You talk yeah. about, you know, where do disparities come from? Yeah. You know, now it, it's going back up. So, you know, everybody is living longer. But if, even if you look at life expectancy right now, you'll see um, about a six-year, a four-year gap between men and women and a six-year gap between black men and black women. Uh, so that's what we say no stats, just the facts. And so one fact for us is six years. You know, we'd like to live, we black men would like to live as long as black women. And if we can accomplish that, then we want to live as long as the, the group that's living the longest. But uh, getting back to your, your question, uh, when I decided to start doing work that was close to uh, <laughs> the people who used to be the respondents, 
what I discovered by focusing on uh, black men is that uh, we, um, I'll put it this way, we, we have been socialized too much to be the tough guy. I'm a tough guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I'm a tough guy. You're I was raised guy. to be yeah. a tough guy. I see. I got yeah. you. And, you know, I got that from my dad because I looked at all the stuff he was doing and I'm saying, man, he's a, he's a tough guy. I want to be a tough guy. Uh, then you go to the playground and at the playground you're going to get teased because everybody's trying to figure out who can we make cry today, <laughs> you know. And so you're going to cry at least once. And then you realize crying just brings more teasing. So I'm going to teach myself how not to cry, mm-hmm. you know, which means you've got to divorce yourself somewhat from your true feelings, mm. the pain, whatever the pain is. Um, so a lot of men grow up wanting to exude this image of toughness, no vulnerability, uh, no, I'm never going to let them see me sweat. I can handle my business. I mean, you know all the phrases. All of it. Take it like a man. Take man it like up. a man. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's where man up came from. Man up. You know, short story is, you know, all the guys that I hang out with when we, you know, just are hanging out. Um, first of all, we don't talk about problems. Rarely. You know, we talk about a whole lot of other things. Um, sports. Uh TVs, you know, bigger TVs, yeah. you know, cars. I mean, you know, it's just all that, right? I, literally, I was at my cousin's house a couple years ago, and my other cousin and his wife had had a massive blow up, and she asked him to leave the house. Mm-hmm. And so I was at my, this is in, in the D.C. area I was visiting. Yeah. And he gets the call, and all I can hear on on, on my end is, uh-huh, yeah. Oh yeah, man, come on over. Okay, we had just made breakfast. He said, "Oh yeah, something your cousin so and so is coming over." I said, "Oh okay, cool. Is everything okay?" He's like, "Yeah, everything's okay." Mm-hmm. He said, oh, "Something, you know, his wife threw him out or something." Like, I don't know, but it's all good. I said, "It's all good." <laughs> what? That doesn't sound all good. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. So I'm waiting with bated breath. I'm like, "Let me go in here and make some extra eggs for him, and you know, all this stuff." And he gets there, and they're both ex-military. He's got this huge military duffel bag. I mean, like, it's huge. It's like, you know, three or four times the length of what one would think of when you think of a duffel bag. Because it's like this military bag where you mm-hmm. put your whole life in it. And he has shown up at my cousin's house with his whole life. Yep. He walks in. He throws the bag, you know, into the room right next to the front door. He comes in. He looks around the room. He nods at my cousin. My cousin nods at him. And my cousin motions with his thumb, food's over there. Mm-hmm. I was in shock. Two hours go by. They say not one word. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are we going to talk about what, what you're doing here? Yeah. What happened? Your wife put you out? Da, da, da. Yeah. And he just sort of looked at me and my cousin, and they looked at each other. They looked back at the TV and it was, and I realized I was completely out of, out of line, out of the, the yeah. culture of how they operate yeah. to even say anything. I spent the entire weekend there. My cousin said not a word to me or to my other cousin about what had just happened with he and his wife, who subsequently they ended up getting divorced. Right. So, yeah, that's a very good story. And I think it epitomizes what Man Up and Down is trying to uh, work through. 
but work through in a way that's uh, respectful of the, what I call it, you know, the tough guy syndrome culture that many of us uh, grew up with. Yeah. So, so the bottom line with Man Up, Man Down is we say things like, uh, tell the truth. You know, we also say things like, uh, take off the mask. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us live our lives behind a mask. So when somebody says to me, you know, how are you doing? Are you all right? How are you feeling? I actually try my best to tell the truth. And very often when I say, oh, man, everything's great. Like today, I'm feeling great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so whoever asked me today, I'm be like, yeah, man. I mean, I don't know why, but I'm feeling good. But it's every day is not like that for me. Yeah. Uh, depending on what's going on. I mean, with life, I could be stressed out. I could be in a low mood. Uh, I could be grieving, you know? Mm -hmm. I could be grieving. Or I could be borderline depressed. We say, tell the truth. Just try it. Take off the mask. If you do that, so what I found is the first thing is uh, if you have a diagnosis, let's say it's diabetes, uh, you don't have to keep that to yourself. Mm-hmm which I did for probably 10 to 15 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was just, okay, I have diabetes. I'm going to deal with it because I'm doing my thing. You know, I'm a man. I'm a man up and just deal with it. Yeah. So basically, man up, man down came from what we say is, uh, you know, manning up may work some of the time, but it ain't going to work all the time. time. Yeah. If you man up, sometimes manning up results in a man going down. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Now, if you're smart enough to talk to somebody, just one person, you can be the man up again. Yeah. So man up, man down is not pessimistic. It's optimistic because it's a circle. Yeah. You know, because you can, you can be up. If you're up, you're probably going to be down at some point. But if you're down, that doesn't mean you stay down. Yeah. You're back up. So anyway, that's where man up, man down came from. And it, 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 I noticed that um, the men I hung out with, we didn't really share everything with each other. So I had a very good friend. Uh, we'd known each other forever. Uh, for 20 years, neither one of us knew that the other person had diabetes. Wow. Until one day, you know, I said, well, let me try this newfangled, crazy thing of just revealing. And he's like, you have diabetes? I'm like, yeah. yeah. He said, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> and all that time, you maybe could have been supporting one another. Not Maybe. What we yeah. could have, you could have been supporting one another. Yeah, I mean, how ridiculous is that? So, you know, that we didn't share that. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as we both found out, we kind of laughed, and then we we're like, "Damn, you know, we're really stupid." Yeah. Like this is stupid, and so we started this, uh, you know, buddy thing, and it was very simple. Uh, we said, um, "Let's each share with each other." By email, because we didn't even live in the same town by that point. Yeah. Uh, what our blood sugar is. Yeah. For the day. And so we'd email, what's your blood sugar? And then he'd email, what's yours? And because if you have diabetes, you, you need to know where you're at. Yeah. And the only way to know that is to check your blood sugar. So if you ask me what my number is, and I don't have an answer for you, guess what? I messed up. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Now, I might lie to you. Yeah. And just make up a really good number. Yeah. You know, but I know I'm lying. That's what we say. Tell the truth. Yeah. 
You know, take off the mask, tell the truth. So Man Up, Man Down is, I mean, the philosophical underpinnings are all about that. And the bottom line is that we're trying to get every man to understand that uh, he is not alone in whatever, whatever struggle he's got. If you can just open up just a little bit, you know, we're not saying tell the world, but just pick one guy that you know. Yeah. And just try to have that conversation. You know, or if 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 you're if you're concerned about a guy that you know, who's a friend, because yeah, sometimes you can tell if I say, "Hey, how are you doing?" and you know the answer's not right. Yeah. Most of us just move on. Mm-hmm. We're saying stop and you know check in one more time. So this is to the the person in people's lives. Yes. To yeah. not step over if I say, "Hey, Doctor Neighbors, how you doing?" and you go, "Eh, yeah. all right." Yeah. So you need to just do one more check on that. Okay. You know, because you'd be amazed at what you might find, find out. So here's what's interesting. As I listen to you, I'm thinking, is this disproportionately worse among African-American and black males or among ethnic minority males? This phenomenon, because this notion of manning up. Yeah. I think it's probably universal yeah. in men in general. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't really know about the male-female difference on something like this. Yeah. Because um, we, have, we haven't studied this in a comparative way to women. Um, but I do think it's more universal than I originally thought within the male population cutting across race ethnic groups. Yeah. Now I don't know all the race ethnic groups very well, but I do interact a lot with white men. Yeah. I know a lot of white men. And when I first started doing this, you know, I would tell everybody who's interested, yeah, I'm I'm working on black men, black men, black men. And all the white men that I knew started going, huh, uh, that's kind of relevant to me. Yeah. And then I would talk to white women. And many of the white women were in relationships with white men. Yeah. And they would immediately go, well, damn, you need to talk to my husband. husband. (laughs) (laughs) I gotcha. Yeah. So for me, the future, I think, is more multi-ethnic, multicultural than what I'm doing right now. The study I'm doing now, I responded to a very specific uh, request to study African-American men. But in the future, we see uh, broadening this because we do think it's more universal than... You know, I mean, I just started with the group that I was most concerned about because we are, uh, I mean, there's so many negative things said about us and the life expectancy statistics were showing me that of all the groups, we were living the least longest, you know, so. Got it. So there's maybe some indication that maybe this is a part of the puzzle Mm -hmm. that helps to sort of give us a clearer understanding of why black men are living um, are, are having um, greater disparities in life expectancy. And I'm also assuming in morbidity and quality of life for the years that they're living. This this is definitely part of the puzzle. I'm glad you said it that way. Yeah. Because it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. But this is a part of it. I mean, I, I know you're very interested in, you know, social determinants, as am I. Yeah. And, and I think when you and I say social, we're really talking about structural fundamental factors and that's the other piece of the puzzle we never want to leave out yeah uh, so every everything we do behaviorally and in terms of the decisions uh, are made within a broader 
you know, policy and political context, and we can't ever forget that. But in the meantime, while we're trying to, you know, have that revolution, we feel that we can make some gains, you know, down on the ground with a good decision making. I gotcha. All right. And so, and so this is really interesting because does this hold true? And what people, a lot of people don't know is the strong association between dental health and cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Most people don't know that the same plaques that form on your teeth are similar to the plaques that form in your arteries that contribute to heart disease. Yeah. I mean, dentists, uh, you know, and I happen to be married to a dentist. To a really wonderful so I, dentist. I, I, I really right love at. dentistry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they have a term they use, you know, uh, oral health is systemic health. And basically, uh, you know, the way I say it is, hey, don't forget that the mouth is part of the body. Yeah. You know, I think as a profession, dentistry has done a very good job of carving out, you know, their niche. I mean, hell, they got their own damn school. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's pretty good. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the mouth is not part of the body. So everything you said is correct and true. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a relationship between diabetes and periodontal disease. Yeah. You know, if you're not on top of your sugar or controlling your blood glucose, your dentist is going to know it. Yeah. If you go to the dentist. Yeah. You know, and if your dentist says, uh, hey, your gums are uh, bleeding or your pocket depths, or getting deeper, that's something you don't want to hear. Yeah. Uh, but if you have diabetes and you're not, and you're struggling with controlling your diabetes, uh, it's going to affect your oral health. And of course, uh, mood <laughs> affects all of this. Yeah. You know, if I'm not on top of my diabetes, well, my my sleep is disturbed. Mm-hmm. And if my sleep is disturbed, everything I mean, my is whole outlook on the day. Yeah. Everything is, is, is yeah, a mess. Yeah. So this. You know, this, we carve these things up because it's convenient for us as uh, researchers and also just as humans. The world is so complicated, we've got to carve it up. But we, you know, we can't forget that, um, you know, these things are interrelated. So, yeah, depression, dental, uh, diabetes, you know, there's a, there's a connection. All right. So so I got to get you to the um, to the back up to the 30,000 foot view okay. with what I call my man on the moon question. All right. Right, man on the moon was not a um, was not a um, predictable. It was like aspirational. Mm-hmm. It had a lot of intention behind it. It mm-hmm. got you know resourced, et cetera. And it was the declaration and the make it so that had it be that by the end of that decade we actually had put a man yes. on the moon. Yeah, what I actually remember uh, JFK. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was the first that, you know nineteen sixty. Given my age, that was the first yeah election that I said that I was paying attention to. Yeah, and of course uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah, was uh, the other guy, and he had an interesting political career. But yeah, anyway, go ahead. What a lot of people don't know, so I don't, I don't, I, I, I like it from the perspective of you know people who are in a position to impact things like that. The president declaring we're going to have a man on the moon. Yeah. The president can then actually make sure that that gets resourced. What a lot yeah. of people won't tell you is man on the moon did come at a big cost. Oh, yeah. Came at a big cost. A lot yeah. of other programs were then defunded and not funded. And mm-hmm. so we made gains in that way, but then not in another way. Yeah. And okay. Tom Levis, I love it. He says, we're, we got to get out of this zero-sum game 
thinking. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum sum game. So I'm talking the non-zero-sum man on the moon. What if we expanded the plate and mm-hmm. had what we needed so that it wouldn't wouldn't be man on the moon at the expense of anything else, mm-hmm. right? What if it could be we could have innovation and we could change the game in, in this area and also continue and, and grow and, and have, you know, prosperity and transformation and improvement and all of that and solutions created in other areas. Mm-hmm. What would that look like in the area of men's health and black and black black male health for you? Yeah. If you had the opportunity, you got the, you know, the presidential, mm-hmm. you know, make it so declaration, mm-hmm. what might that look like for you? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, from, from way, stepping way back. Yeah. Uh, it would be so far back that it would not only have a positive impact on men's health, but it would have a, an impact on health more generally. Yeah. And um, when I first started thinking about this, you know, everybody thought I had lost my mind. <laughs> now then, I can't wait to hear what you and, have to and, say. And now that um, uh, we have the uh, uh, Democratic uh, candidates uh, debating each other, uh, this idea has gotten a little more uh, attention, and that is, it goes by a couple names, uh, uh, basic income guarantee or uh, guaranteed basic mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Andrew Yang has kind of brought this out in a way that uh, it wasn't out there before. Uh, so for me, just really trying to simplify my world, uh, if there's one thing I know from the uh, epidemiologic investigations is that there's always been this very strong relationship between socioeconomic position and health outcomes. Yeah. And so within that, you're talking about poverty, you're talking about income, family income, wealth. Uh, it's bad for your health not to have enough money to live. Mm. So if I could just wave my hand, um, and this is a floor argument, you know, I'm just saying, uh, bring everybody up to what we can agree on is an acceptable uh, basic income where uh, the majority of things that you need are uh, provided for. Yeah. Another way of saying that, that in a country with the kind of financial resources that we have, it's unbelievable to me that we have people who live at or below the poverty line. Yeah. And the best way for people not to be poor is for them to have enough money so that they're not poor. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, now this, this means providing financial resources in a way that's much more comprehensive than this sort of safety net approach that we have now. And it's a lot more unconditional than the kinds of means tests that we have now. We sort of have decided who deserves to get a little bit and who doesn't. Yep. I'm just saying that by virtue of being on the planet, let's think about uh, that everybody everybody deserves a basic income, whatever that is, just by virtue of being human. Um, and if, I, I will declare that as president. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it because that's your big idea. Well, that's, that's basic income guarantee. Your that, big idea. Yeah, I mean, when I think about social determinants and structural determinants, and the things that really drive the individual decision making on health, 
on health, yeah, uh, that would be a tremendous help. Um, now, I don't think that's going to solve every problem, you know, but I, I just think that's a good place for us to start. So a lot of times when I say this to my safety net friends, what they hear is me saying, we don't need you. And I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. You know, if, if your job is to help people with, you know, their insurance package or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, get more food, uh, just whatever part of that, uh, or education, you know, just by waving my hand and making sure everybody has a basic income. That doesn't mean we still aren't going to need teachers or health educators or social workers. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, I don't know why they're hearing me in the wrong way. I'm not trying to eliminate their, I'm just saying, look, we're going to make it easier for all of us. You know, we need individual decisions, like in my own case. Uh, let's make it easier for Woody to make a good choice. Yeah. He's trying to control his diabetes. Why are you making Woody, Dr. Neighbors, you know, why are you making it so hard for him to figure out how to eat less sugar? Why, why are you making that so hard? I mean, you would not believe how hard I am now working to try to figure out what to put in my mouth. Yeah. So that it doesn't spike my sugar. Yeah. Now, for me to know that something spikes my sugar, I've got to check my blood sugar. Yeah. You know, so that's what we're working on with the men in my study. Like, look, man, I know you don't want to prick your finger, but if you really want to know what's going on, you're going to have to get some feedback. Yeah. But that's only part of the story. <laughs> Why, if I, if I like to eat cereal or if I go to a restaurant and eat a salad and then I put my favorite dressing on, you know, whatever it is. Why is there sugar hidden and in so many... Yeah. places this is a structural policy political issue yep. but but believe me the folks who are putting all that sugar out there would have me believe that i am not up to the task of like it's eating just correctly. all on you it's yeah, all on yeah. you it's yeah. all over there with Woody. yeah and for a long time I, I i said yeah i guess there's something wrong with me i can't figure it out well there's not that much wrong with me i mean i there is something wrong with me. But, <laughs> but, that, not, but that ain't not an example. Yeah, that ain't it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I, I think that uh, you know, not only with the basic income, but just some of the uh, political context uh, within which many of us with chronic diseases have to live, we, we can't let those parts of the puzzle off the hook. So that's why you're correct when you say it's just part of the puzzle. Yeah. Dr. Neighbors, I, I feel like I've been schooled today. I have um, ordered a copy of Black Rage. I will be getting that book. Yeah, and, that's it's a great book. I mean, it came out in the '60s. I make all my students read it. Yeah, I wish <laughs> I, I wish my my mentor did not pass that one on to me, but I will uh, make sure that I take it on. I love your big idea that yeah. if we had a, a basic income guarantee and if we leveled the playing field there, then at least we could then go back and reevaluate and see what the disparities are and how people fare when we're all sort of at, at, a, at some minimum threshold of being able to meet our needs, mm -hmm. right? I just love the idea mm -hmm. that if we could get there, then we could go back and see, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It might not cure everything, but it would be a start, right? It would be a great start. I love that idea. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Neighbors, that's our time. Okay. You've been a real treat. 
Thank you. I know you're, um, and, and for those who don't know, you're sort of semi-retired. Mm -hmm. It looks like you're going to end up failing retirement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have lots of thoughts about retirement, but since our time is up, I won't go into my treatise there. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like it's really not possible to fail retirement. Yeah, I know yeah. what people mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the way I look at it very quickly is that eventually I know I'm getting to the point where I will no longer work for an income. Got you. You know, but I will continue to work. As long as I'm healthy, I will continue to work and do the kind of work I enjoy. And it's actually a real blessing to get to a point in your life where you don't have to work for an income. Yeah. And this is basically connected to the conversation we just had. In this country, it's hard for us to separate the concept of income from the concept of work. Yeah. But those two things don't have to be uh, joined. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get my age, people are more willing to say, okay, you've worked long enough, you know, so now you don't need to work anymore. We're going to give you a little something to live yeah. on. And, and believe me, we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the whole idea of, you know, do we always have to tie income to work? That's something for all of us to explore intellectually. For me personally, um, you know, I can see that there will someday be uh, a time when I won't work for income. And all that means is, is I won't have a boss. And that just means I'm a free agent. Yeah. And I can do my thing in ways that, you know, you can't do when you're employed by someone. So there's a lot to be done. Uh, you know, volunteer work. I mean, there's so, so much out there. Uh, retirement was never anything that I was afraid of. Yeah. Uh, because as long as I'm healthy and I can be active, I'll have plenty to do. Yeah, yeah. I love it, Dr. Neighbors. Including I love coming it. I love on it. the next podcast. You, can, you can come to, at the <laughs> forefront whenever you want and every time you're in Flint. And I do invite you to come back. And I also invite you to come back. And if there are men in your program who want to share about their experience or who want to share about what they've learned, you know, we, we have had, um, you know, community partners. We've had academic partners. We've had activists you know we're th this is supposed to be a show that really is about engaging people in the conversation elevating the narrative putting things out at the forefront that we know are important and pressing and impacting our lives and impacting people and populations yeah. but just don't necessarily live for people or don't have a profile mm -hmm. you know in the midst of all of the craziness that's happening around us so yeah, i know at least five men yeah. like right now who would you know, from the study that I'm doing, yeah. uh, who would be very interested and willing to come in and talk to you about not only, you know, what we're doing, but just what they're dealing with. Yeah. You know, here in Flint and trying to keep their blood sugars under control. Well, Dr. Neighbors, I invite you, actually, because you could come and you could host them and I could be your co-host. Okay. Because I think that conversation being mm -hmm. led by you, somebody that they know and that they trust, how impactful would that be for other men to mm -hmm. be able to hear that conversation? Okay, then it's a deal. Done. All right, Dr. Neighbors. So then, not uh, goodbye, but until we meet again. Until we meet again. Until we meet again. It's Dr. Deb at the forefront. We're out of here. Thanks so much.